church plant because we just started. This is our, this is our fourth week um, of gathering in this place, and we thank God for the opportunity to launch publicly. And we hope that you all, some of you all um, who have been coming for a while, will begin choosing, saying, yo, it, I, I want this to be the community of faith that I attach myself to for the purpose of not just getting in a group and going to a Sunday morning gathering, but to also say, I want to do life with this group of people. And not only do I want to do life with this group of people, I also want to join God on his mission. Um, and this is this to be the headquarters for me at this point in time in my season of life of which I choose to see God utilize me in dynamic community to receive from him, but also to give away um, to others, um, believers and unbelievers alike, to see God floss himself locally, nationally, and internationally. Epiphany Fellowship, we like to see, we like to see, uh, we break our ministry up into thirds. We like for 33% to be um, our local ministry. We like another 33% to be our national ministry and another 33% of our ministry to be international ministry. So we're not just thinking about North Philly, even though we're passionate for North Philly, want to see God do some banging things in North Philly. But we also want to, since we believe that God thinks globally because God wants to be shown off on every sector of the planet to the most remotest village, to the most grimy block, um, not only to the most grimy block, but in the highest high rise and in the lowest gutter, God wants to be glorified. And because of that, the community of faith gathers in local communities to get together to strategize what God has been dreaming about eternally to make happen through his people. And so if that's you, we'd love for you, for, for you to cop an opportunity to cop this community as your own. Amen. 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 Um, today, today, um, I, I'm, I, man, this text was a monster. Um, going verse by verse, you, you, you can't really pick and choose. You know, if you go to guest speak somewhere, um, you can, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to, what you want to speak. You know, you can use the, your, your, your one trigger pull that, that, that kills it every time. But what's beautiful about verse by verse teaching is it doesn't let you get away with self-exaltation. But what it does is it causes you to move into teaching and preaching the entire counsel of God. And I, I was deeply, deeply challenged by this week's message, not just in exegetical work, but in spiritual development. And it's always good for passages that you and I don't usually go to. Like usually we go to like John 4, John 3:16, you know, John 17, Upper Room Discourse. You know, if we want to pull a trigger, we go to Psalm 23, I mean Psalm 91. Um, we got all of our favorite passages that the average culturally, you know, cultural Christian um, can kind of can kind of grab on. But, but what's, what's beautiful about the story of John, about this saga, so to speak, is, is it's the unfolding and the unveiling of the story of John's uh, purpose. John is a, is, a, is a captain. He's an artist, so to speak, that loves to give purpose statements of why he writes to people. So when you look at the book of John in chapter 20, you'll see that he'll give a purpose statement for why he wrote the book. If you look in um, 1 John and you look at all of his writings, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, even Revelation, you'll see that he always gives purpose. And so it's, it's interesting as this is narrative literature. And so like in, in, in getting into narrative literature, 
Um, it's not like an epistle where everything's just a shotgun approach where you just kind of wham, this means this, wham, this means this, go and do this. But, but, but the way the Bible, when the Bible is written in narrative or in story or his, um, is written historically, what it does is it lays out things. And what we have to do is we have to use that genre to grab a hold of what the writer is trying to express about God. And what we're going to talk about today kind of reminds me, uh, I'm, a lot of people uh, talk bad about me or, or kind of tease me because, because I, collect, I collect toys. I collect vintage toys. And uh, stop laughing. And um, I collect comics. I collect comics. I, I was a late bloomer and starting to collect comics and, and collect figures. And, and, and one of the things that I love about figures and, and, and about comics is I like the, the tension of the secret identities of the superheroes. I mean, I love to see, you know, the cat when he, when he or she is just in their regularness. And then all of a sudden when they suit up um, to kind of put on their superhero costume. So I, I really, really like that. And so one of my favorite, all-time favorite comic characters is Batman. And uh, it's not just because he's popular. I mean, Batman is a beast. Y'all understand. I'm about to let y'all in on some Batman theology. Batman, Batman, man, is, 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 he's called the world's greatest detective. And the reason why he's called the world's greatest detective is because, man, this cat can, I mean, he, he doesn't need the Internet to find you. I mean, he can use the Internet to find you. He creates his own type of Internet. Matter of fact, every superhero, when he, when he joined the Justice League, he broke down every superhero's abilities in detail. And when he broke down their abilities in detail, what he did was he developed their strengths and their weaknesses. Matter of fact, he's so pointed, if a, if a, if a cat doesn't have superpowers, what Batman will do is Batman will say, well, it's going to take, I'm going to give him a left, he's going to give me a right, and then I'm going to duck, and then he can calculate how long it's going to take to beat him. But matter of fact, even though he doesn't have any supernatural powers or superpowers, he, he knows how to beat people with superpowers. So he has an arsenal of things just in case Superman wigs out, he got a way of taking Superman out permanently just in case Superman wigs out. If Wonder Woman starts tripping, he got a way of, 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 of getting on Wonder Woman and putting Wonder Woman and the Flash and all of them out of commission. But, but what's, deep, what's deepest about Batman is Batman goes through extraordinary lengths to, to, to not be unmasked. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is. But very few times in, in Batman's career as the greatest detective and the guy that can break down and critique anyone, a man who was deeply hurt in his past and is driving him as a vigilante superhero, what happened is, is a few people got close enough to him, and he called them in close to himself, and when he called them close to him, he was willing to unmask who he is. And the text today has to do with that same reality of Jesus Christ unmasking himself. Jesus Christ, you're going to see John as he writes. It's, it, I mean, it's simple, but it has intensive depth in how Jesus gradually takes off the mask of himself. And as he's progressively revealed throughout the book of John and John all the way through continues to unveil Jesus all the way up to the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, uh, ascension of Jesus to the point where he fully unmasks and unveils who he is. And so today in our passage, um, um, he, he begins to look at that process and begins the process of what it looked like for Jesus Christ to unmask himself. 
So we're going to talk about for a little while today, we're going to talk about disciples.web. Disciples.web. Let's read it. It says in verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John was standing with his disciples and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and, and found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth and the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see, man. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming in, coming to him, and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, are you the son of God? You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, "Uh, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This passage is packed and pregnant with so much background, so much information that we, we, we can't begin to unpack what's in this passage in one day. But what we want to do is I want to focus strategically on some things that I believe the writer is bringing out for the readers who have not believed in Jesus and for the believers who have believed in Jesus to be encouraged about Jesus. And and there's some things about Jesus. If you read the Gospels and and you don't get Jesus out of the Gospels, then you didn't read the Gospels. The Gospel writers are always intensively trying to give us a bird's eye view and a picture of nobody else but Jesus. We can do character studies on Peter. We can do character studies on Andrew. We can look at John the Baptist. We can look at Herod. We can look at Pilate. But the whole unfolding reality of any Gospel that you read is to unpack 
back for the reader, whether unbeliever or believer, Jesus. And so in this passage at hand, he's unpacking Jesus. And this is a bridging passage. You see, in chapter 1, we saw in our first week together that John wanted to give a prelogue to the table of contents, which this chapter is the table of contents. And in this chapter, having the table of contents, this table of contents gives a litany of names in this first chapter of Jesus more than any chapter in any part of the Bible. So some scholars call this the table of contents to John. So today, all we're going to do is read through the table of contents to point through the rest of what's going to be in this book. So in chapter one, the first week, we saw the preexistence of Jesus. We saw that Jesus, before he, be, before he came to earth and took on an additional nature, becoming man, uh, 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 binding together himself with humanity forever, he was pre-existing, kicking it with God, popping his collar with God, chilling with God, sitting at the table with God, enjoying God and enjoying himself and enjoying the spirit. He eternally existed, was enjoying himself. He was, he existed, and he partook in creation. In other words, when God said something to come into existence, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word, the reason of God, the bringing to pass and the fulfillment of all things through God in Christ, he went and did it. When God said, let there be light, Jesus went into darkness and snatched light into existence. That's the Jesus that he preaches. But then he goes on and talks about a testimony of cats trying to show who he is through a a dude named John. Then after that, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then we saw the battle between light and darkness. And all of these things in this narrative literature, I'm saying to you, because he's going to unfold all of these things from the table of contents and the definition of terms as he goes through. But he's calling us into some closeness with Jesus in some ways that many of us have never been close with him. And so he goes forth and says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's, it's written in the first person, yo, I was there. This cat John said I was there as he dwelt among us. And so now we saw Deuce last week talk about can I get a witness and talked about the witness of John and then talk about I need to witness. But then from there he goes now into the next bridge, which is the precursor. It's the night before launch. Day before launch. It's three days. Jesus spends three days gathering a core group. A core group of people to launch his public ministry. Now, this passage, a lot of people confuse with Luke chapter 6 and the Matthew passage um, and, and the Mark passage where Jesus calls his disciples. This is not a calling passage. This is actually before he even called the cats to be to his disciples. This is the precursor to it. And so he gets a couple of dudes together, and they're five deep, and they're going to go into Canaan later. But now, and before they go into Canaan for him to see his first miracle, he stops right here and begins to sovereignly show us by the power of God what Jesus is saying to us. So that brings us to our first point. Disciples of Jesus Christ have a journey with him that is constantly unfolding. Disciples of Jesus Christ have a journey with him that is constantly unfolding. In this passage, if you can overview this passage and just kind of tip it, it's basically talking about the unfolding nature of a discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ. In a few minutes, some of I'm, I want to talk to you all about um, the need for your discipleship journey with Jesus Christ to continuously being an unfolding relationship with him where not all of him has been fully revealed to us and therefore we must continue to passionately chase after the reality of growing in our knowledge in our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But then we see next that disciples of Jesus Christ constantly point people who look to them to look at Jesus. Look at John. It says, again, the next day, John standing with his two, with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. John is chilling with his disciples, and Jesus walks past. Jesus didn't come up. Jesus didn't reintroduce himself. Say, what's up, fellas? He didn't do that. It says, and Jesus walked past while he was standing with his boy, while John was standing with his boys. And so we don't know how they were chopping it up. They don't, they, we don't know if they were chopping it up in the scriptures. They were looking for some more people to baptize. I mean, we don't know what in the world these cats was doing. But it was something that happened when John saw Jesus. Every time John saw Jesus, he would always react in a powerful way. The first time John reacted when he, when he saw Jesus, well, he didn't see him with his eyes, but somehow in the womb of his mother, when Jesus was in the room, he jumped. The next time he saw his cousin that he was born nine months before was when he was baptizing because John came out of the wilderness um, eating sugar and wearing a wool outfit uh, with no drawers on, saying, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he, I mean, he didn't have on a tunic, no undergarments. He just had on a burlap wool outfit with nothing on, out there crazy, coming out. And John is believed to be a part of the Qumran community. The Qumran community is the crew of people. When you heard in earlier last century, that's crazy to say last century, um, the 1900s, um, is, is, is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So John was kicking it in the desert. So John was a grimy, uh, thuggish-looking prophet. I mean, dirty, stinky, um, nobody, no, no place to say. He just shows up one day out at the River Jordan. And Jesus comes past. People start coming out there saying, only thing we remember. Now, man, if it weren't for his mother and father, man, we really wouldn't think this dude was credible. Because his, his pops is a, is a priest and, his, you know, his mom's good people. They were old and had a baby. But this dude is crazy. So, so John comes a smack out of nowhere. I mean, I mean, chew, eating locusts, popping locusts off. He not frying the locusts. He not, he not dipping it in chocolate to cover up the taste. I mean, this cat just grab a locust, shake it off, put the wings off, and just put it in his mouth. I mean, just nasty. Seemed like dude. Um, but, 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 but he was a, he was a priest and a prophet, and he came out of nowhere. And everybody was thinking that John was going to be this banging prophet dude. And John comes on the scene and says, I'm not him. Stay in the saga with me. He says, I'm not him. And so Jesus passes by the first time, behold the Lamb of God. Then the second time he sees Jesus, he's talking to his disciples there in the conversation. He said, the Lamb of God again, y'all. And this one's unique because there has never in their history has they ever called anybody the Lamb of God. Now, if you read Leviticus chapter 1, verse, just the whole chapter, or you read Exodus 29, they always, God always speaks to them in terms of get a lamb, get a ram, get a heifer, provide for me a heifer, provide for me a lamb. But it's interesting in this passage that God does something different through John's prophetic utterance, and he says, behold, the lamb of God. Powerful terminology to point to a reality. An article is put in front of it to talk about the absolute nature of the fact that this is the cat. This is the Lamb of God. In other words, 
After this cat comes on the scene, there will be no need for any other people bringing any other lambs, any more rams, any more heifers, the Lamb of God. And so in his saying, but, but that's not the, the crazy part about it. He says, the Lamb, that, that's, that's, that's interesting info, but then he says, of God, powerful. Because he says, this is the ultimate Lamb. But this lamb is God's lamb. Now, usually, we know that God will provide things, everything that we have is God's, but they would bring lambs to the table. But this time, that's different. In the unfolding nature of this story, God brings the lamb to the table. God, God didn't let anybody else bring them to the table. God says, I'm putting them on, the, on deck. And John, uh, John doesn't have, John has probably a partial understanding of what it meant. But in the mind of the disciples, they didn't think of Isaiah 53. They thought under the law. And so what happened was, is when they heard Lamb of God, all they heard was the principle of redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption has a litany of meanings. But in, in redemption in connection to Jesus is Jesus being the sacrificial lamb on the cross who will upstart everything all over again that man jacked up. But in the minds of these cats, lamb of God meant something else. He meant a political redeemer from their perspective. A cat that was just going to get them some, some get them out of the political situation that they get, they were in, so they could get better jobs, so they could get better houses, so they can get better loot, so they could be in a better physical situation. But God not only wanted them in a better physical situation; He wanted them mainly in a better spiritual situation. And many of us. What we want from the Lamb of God is sometimes we look in the Bible and we look so far away from the people in the Bible saying, well, those were the Jews who wanted Jesus to come a certain way. But many of us wanted Jesus to come a certain way, too, if we be honest. If we be honest, see, Lamb of God also points to the fact that not only will he be the Lamb of God, but we'd have to follow him in his lambness. So if we had to follow him in his lambness, meaning that he gave his life as a sacrifice, then that was going to mean that many of us is going to have to give our life as a sacrifice. And the question on the floor is, is are you willing to see Jesus for the spiritual ramifications of what he wants to do in your life? Or do you want him to see, want to see him in your own vantage point? And so God is always trying to renew the minds of the people of God to get them to see a grander picture of the son. And, and, and so John does something powerful that, 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 that had astounding humility on the part of John the Baptist. He says, he points them to Jesus. He points them to Jesus. What's powerful about him pointing him to Jesus is he was relinquishing his role. He was willing to relinquish his role as their discipler. He was willing to back up in humility and allow Jesus to take his proper place in their life. How many of us in our lives always want to have the primary place in people's life? I mean, everybody dreams about being a superstar. I mean, when you're watching the basketball game, 
I mean, I mean, especially back in the Jordan days, I used to be imagining. I said, man, I wish I had. I was Jordan. I was born as Michael Jordan, and I came up. I went, and I just had all the money, all the suits, all the gear, just all the glory of Jordan. When I see somebody on the stage rocking the mic or I see some superstar, they come on the red carpet, and people flashing, flashing lights at them, and, and everybody's looking at them. I'm looking at them like, man, I wish that was me. Everybody has a dream of being center stage. It's every, if you admit it, you got, you, everybody in here has dreamed once or twice about being center stage. And what's so powerful about John is he goes beyond his dream of wanting to be center stage to put Jesus center stage. All over our lives, God is calling us to put Jesus at center stage. At center stage. And somebody says, well, what does that look like to put Jesus at center stage? It means that you always ain't got to be the person at the center stage. Real simple. Real simple. Question is, how will you center stage? Like even in the wife, in the life of my, my, my relationship with my wife. I didn't mean to spend too much time on this part. But, it, it, but, but I want to be center of her life. I mean, you know, men, we with our egos, you know, if, if, my, if my wife want to look at another dude, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my whole ego has collapsed to, into my toe, toenails. But one of the things that, that, that I'm learning is that if I point her to Jesus, if I point her to Jesus as the ultimate follower, it will cause her in a more powerful way to want to follow me. And so many of us, the very thing that we're trying to grasp a hold of, of being center stage, God gives, us, gives it to us, but he gives it to us with us having the right attitude, the proper perspective, giving him the proper glory, but many of us are in deep frustration in our lives because God won't take us to a next step. But it's because we're too center stage. We're too center stage. And so God says, when you begin to decrease some more and I get props for being center stage, well, somebody might say, well, why God got to be center stage? Why Jesus got to be center stage? He arrogant. Not when it's the truth. See, the only person that has the right to say that he's absolutely uh, 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 worthy to be at center stage is God because everything about him isn't, isn't, isn't arrogant. It's because he's righteously glorious, which means he needs to be central on the stage. That's what Jesus needs to be. But then John, then, then John goes further. It says the Lamb of God. What's, what's beautiful about the imagery of the Lamb of God, it, 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 it reminds me of... Um, I got some stuff on layaway. How many of y'all still use layaway? Stop lying. Stop lying. Some of y'all go to Walmart, put stuff on layaway. I went to Burlington. I couldn't afford this jacket. I, 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 I needed so I'll put it on layaway. Now, what's funny about putting stuff on layaway at, um, at, 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 at Burlington Co. Factory is they charge you $5 to put the, the, whatever you put on layaway on layaway. And the $5 doesn't, doesn't go towards the actual cost of the layaway, it's just the cost for them to hold it. And so once you want to get it off layaway, you pay the full price, not half of the price, not a quarter of the price. Come on, let me borrow it tonight, I'll bring it right back. I mean, they're not going to do that. But you got to pay for the whole thing in order to get it off layaway. Well, the Bible talks about the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. But, but the blood of bulls and goats put our sins on layaway. God put him on layaway. He said, look, 
He said, I got a beef with you. But he said, what I'm going to do is slay that heifer. That's not the lamb of God. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it on layaway and I'm going to store it away. But when the lamb of God came to redeem, he came to take our sins off layaway. The lamb of God. That's who we're talking about. So how many of you like the fact that Jesus is getting your stuff off layaway? Not your clothing, you know. Somebody tell me, I'm going to give me some sneaks today. Trust that Jesus is going to get them off layaway. <laughs> we're talking about your sins, y'all. Come on. Stay with me. Stay with me. But then he goes and it says, and the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus and followed Jesus and followed Jesus. Disciples of Jesus Christ are clear on why they ought to follow Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ are clear on why they want to follow Jesus Christ. John uses the terminology, follow Jesus, as a euphemism for discipleship. Now, let's, let's talk about disciple for a minute. I, I didn't want to spend too much time on it, but disciple, the word disciple. The word disciple um, is a word that just means to follow someone. But the word disciple here comes from a word that was only used once. I think it was used in Isaiah 52, verse 10, or Isaiah 57, one of the two. But disciple comes from a word in their day that, that meant Talmud. And a Talmud, like, like they would go up to a teacher and ask a teacher, a parent of a, of a, of a child or a, a student that is filling the teacher, how the teacher walks, how the teacher talks, all the information about the teacher. And that student commits themselves as a Talmud to a rabbi. And what they would do is they would want to be everything like that rabbi. And so when John says, behold the Lamb of God, it's crazy. I don't know what the convo was. I don't know whether there was a transition where, where they said, all right, we're going to go follow him. Or it, but it just seems like the text just says, and they followed Jesus. And, and, and John got to have a strong ego for somebody he was just pouring into to not stop talking to him and go follow some other dude. But, but, but it says, and they followed Jesus. Now look what happened. And it says, and Jesus turned to them. Beheld them following him and said, What do you seek? In their day, what a disciple would do is if you saw a rabbi walking along on a road or you saw a rabbi going somewhere, most of the time the students would walk behind the rabbi. And so what they were saying to Jesus is, We want to follow you. And so Jesus, you know, kind of walking along, you know how you get that feeling you're being watched. I don't know if Jesus put out a knife, ah, you know what I'm saying, but I don't know if he did that. But as Jesus was walking along, I know Jesus felt like he was being stalked. And so Jesus turns around. I mean, I, I don't believe he was like, what do you want? I believe Jesus turned around, what you want? And Jesus turned around and asked them what they wanted. He wasn't scared either. But Jesus says, what do you want? And in their culture, since he knew why they were following him, possibly, which is clear, he does. But he asked them anyway, what do you want? A powerful question. A powerful question. Because Jesus wants to know why you're following him. 
just wants to know, what's the real on why you're following me? Think about that for a minute. Don't just say, because I want to be more Christ-like. Like some of you all will say that real quick. But think about it. The way you can kind of know why you're following Jesus is several ways. Check your prayer life and see what's dominant in your prayer in your petition section. What do you want from Jesus? What's your greatest? If, if, if Jesus said, I'll give you a blank check of whatever to ask for. Stop thinking about money. Just stuff to ask for. What would you ask him for if he says, what do you want? A piercing question because it calls to heart every single false motive that any one of us could have. It calls it to the carpet and says, what's the real deal? Is, is this a trendy thing to follow me? Or do you want, what's your, what's your picture of who I am? Am I a divine genie? Am I the dude that just makes you cry during praise and worship? Am I the cat that you're trusting just to get you a mate? Are you the person that you're trusting just for your purpose to get in a particular career direction? What do you want? Jesus asked. Because in the unfolding nature of this story of John, John is unfolding whether or not we have the proper perspective on Jesus so that when he asks us what we want, we want the right stuff. We want the right stuff. So Jesus turns and says, what, what in the world? Do you want? And, and they turn and they say, Rabbi. Well, there was a term of respect to say, sir or rabbi, but rabbi means my great one. But they, they, don't, they don't fully know anything about him. So what they're going to do is they basically ask him a question. They say, which translated means teacher? Where are you staying? John uses this word throughout the book of John to talk about. It's the word meno, which means to remain or to abide. And he uses it as a euphemism to point to the fullness of what he wants their relationship to be like. And they say, where are you menoing? Where are you abiding? And the, and the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Where are you challenging? Where can I learn more? Where can I get, how can I get under and begin to investigate, investigate what my disciple was saying about, saying about you? Many of us, God and Jesus Christ, it, it, it wants to see whether or not you want to remain with him. Real simple things in the text. Whether you want to remain, he says, where are you staying? And it says, and he said to them, come and you'll see. And all of this is deeper than just them saying where he was staying. They were actually saying, we want to learn more so you can pour into us, so you can teach us, so that we can develop the same convictions about you that our discipler had of you. I remember... 
when I was a, a, a brand spanking new Christian, and I, I, I had some shysty habits still. I mean, I still got shysty habits, but I, I had some shysty habits. And I would, you know, I, I, as a single dude, you know, I, I was, I was flirtate, very, very flirtatious. So if I was attracted to a sister, I wouldn't tell her I was attracted. I would do things in her vicinity to show that I was attracted. And so, and so, and so what I would do is I, I would, I would kind of stand around. So, you know, um, you know, I, I've been spending time with the Lord. And I'm utilizing my godliness and my, you know, my spiritual insight to kind of woo her uh, into liking me or whatever. And, 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 I, and I was around this sister for a while. I was spending time. We were going places together, chilling together. And she said something to me that I'll never forget. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want to stay or do you want to leave? Because if you don't want the right thing, you got to roll. And Jesus calls them in to remain with him. After he asked the question, they take the bait. They come over to where Jesus was, was, was chilling. And it says, and they therefore stayed, and they saw he, where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So in their culture, if somebody, if you went over somebody's house at the 4 o'clock, it was custom for you to go over their house and stay with them all night and sleep. Stay with them. But Jesus calls them to, to, it, so that they wouldn't go back during that day so he could spend time with them and he could develop them and he could talk to them about what it mean, what it meant to follow him. But something Something powerful happens in this section. It's something that I think is very applicable, very, very user-friendly for us as Christians. It's after they spent time with him, they didn't waste any time in doing some stuff. Look at verse 40. Look at verse 40. It says, and they... And one of the two who, had, who heard John and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he, first, he found first his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So he got it. He got it. He got it. He got it. He said, we have found the cat that we've been looking for. We found the Messiah. And what's, what's so crazy about this next section is you see that these guys do not waste their time in calling their closest friends, their relatives, and people that were closest to them in relationship to come check out Jesus. One of the biggest mistakes that I believe we make as Christians is when someone comes to Christ, we automatically make them withdraw from every relationship and every connection that they had. Some relationships are dangerous that require withdrawal. Amen. But then there are others that need to remain. There were, there were some ways in which I, I, brought, I did damage to the open, some open doors that I had. Because in college, I, I pledged a fraternity. And when I pledged this fraternity, I went over, I was a stepmaster, all these different things. And one of the first things that I did was when I, when, I, when I started walking with the Lord and getting discipled, is I started seeing and peeping the stuff in the rituals of the manual that were demonic and also saw the practices, and they weren't lining up with the discipleship relationship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I denounced my fraternal letters. But even though I denounced my fraternal letters, the way I walked away from my fraternal letters left a door closed, there could have been a banging opportunity for me to call some cats into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God wants us, as we close doors um, that, that he's calling us out of, because everybody in here has a door of relationship that is a relationship for somebody to come check Jesus out more exclusively so that they can get an intelligible bird's eye view, not just an emotionable, emotional eye view of Jesus, but a closer eye view of who Jesus is in calling them fresh and new into a brand spanking new relationship with God. And so my man Andrew go gets his brother Peter. And he says, man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, it's, it's just like going to see a movie, you know, and, and they're coming out of the movie and you say, man, man, I'm t- you see someone? Oh, man, I'm telling you, you got to see this flick, man. It was off the meter. Then you go see it and it's a bunk movie. But this time, this is not a bunk movie that he's talking about. He's saying, man. There's some movies that come out, y'all, that everybody that go see it are floored by it. John, John is pointing the picture to not a person that was wanting the right stuff from God by God sovereignly fixing their heart to move towards and to draw them into relationship with Jesus Christ. When they encountered the movie of the saga of a relationship with Jesus Christ, all them cats unanimously responded. And so he goes forward and he talks about, he said he found, I didn't say my, my next point because I know some of y'all wanted points. Um, disciples of Jesus Christ invite others to encounter him. So <clears throat> he goes further and it says, and Simon said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said to him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, rock which translated means Peter. We have to trust. Many of us are always trying to strong arm people, and we want to be the Holy Spirit. But if we would just properly present and bring Jesus to people, Jesus can do the rest real well. But some of us, you know, we we so Holy Ghost filled, so fire baptized, and so uh, uh, you know, so strong in our in, in our convictions and our ability to apologetically persuade that we overemphasize what we want them to emphasize, and they miss Jesus. And so, what the, what this disciple does is he says, "Man, just come and see." He is, and Jesus does the rest. And Jesus has an encounter with Cephas that changed this cat's life forever. And Jesus speaks prophetically over him and says. You're not going to be the smelly businessman that you've always been, but you're going to be something else. You're going to be something greater. And so I'm renaming you. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus just meet this dude and he naming him, nicknaming him. Suppose you first meet somebody and they just, you just, I mean, that's, they got to seem ironic to somebody. You just come up, somebody come up to you and they just nickname you. You don't know me. Jesus, Jesus does a banging thing. Jesus, I mean, Jesus bold, man. He just start naming people. <laughs> and and he, he gives them a nickname. Jesus loved nicknames. Nicknames was actually a part of rabbinic culture where when they were calling someone into a discipleship relationship and they saw potential on them, they would rename them based on their potential. And so Jesus, being fully God and fully man, 
saw into the crevices and the cardia of the heart of Peter, and he named him Rock. But he wasn't depending on Peter to become it. He was depending on himself to make Peter into that. And each and every one of us, God sees more in us based on him being in us. See, this is not humanism where if you just muster up all of your energy and you get it together, you can be all that you can be. You know, them, I, I can't stand motivational messages. I can't stand them because it tramples on the depravity of man. It, I mean, I'm telling you, I did it. And you know the joint, I hate those infomercials where you, you know, you turn it on and he says, dude in a suit, face, you know, no hair on their face, shape up, banging, suit, you know, he's sitting on a yacht, something about something. I'm telling you, all I did was I listened to Bob's principles. And when I put the principles into practice, man, that thing came to pass. And, and I'm telling you, you ought to get on board too. And you get on board as whack. Why ain't happen for me? Whack. Pyramid screams and can't on. <laughs> but 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 Jesus, but Jesus, what's powerful about Jesus is Jesus depends on himself to make us what we're not. And that's why you can't get souped off of your potential. Because some preachers preach people, and you are a child of God, and you open your, and, and tell you all this stuff about yourself. But, you, but, but they don't t talk to you about the fact that there's a gap. And what's so banging about Jesus is Jesus takes the time to spend with Peter in a discipleship relationship that fills in the gap of what he was lacking. That's what God wants to do. When he's calling us into relationship, he's calling you deeper. Some of you need to go deeper right now. And you, you say, I know God. I know God's hand is on. I know. That's not enough. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, you know, but now it's time to move. Stagnance. Walking is that God is calling us out of stagnance. And, and what's funny about this section of the, of the book, unanimously, every commentary that I read said, and every name that they named Jesus in this chapter as disciples, they didn't have a full understanding of what they meant when they were saying it. And so what Jesus does is Jesus, he, listen what he does. He knows that even though you've read a theology book and you know, you've, you've, you've gotten your blue vines dictionary, that still doesn't unpack who Jesus is. And spending time in a book and even the Bible, I know y'all gonna think I'm a heretic, is not enough, is not enough to be a true disciple. You can fill your head up with, I mean, and I, you know I love theology, so, but I'm just saying, many of us, we're going to have to get beyond the bounds of quotation to biblical motivation, to follow Jesus in dynamic, putting into practice that theology, putting into practice, I mean, we got word and theology running out of our ears, but the question is, can we walk with Jesus as he fills in the gaps of what we're not. Dang, I got to move. But then he goes then he goes forward and he says um he says, "Okay, the next day he purposed to go forth 
into Galilee. And he found, that's dope, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. This is the only cat in the passage that Jesus says to him, follow me. He tells Philip that, so Jesus had to go into, you'll find, he'll say this again in John 4, if Jesus, and he'll floss how God allows Jesus after his baptism to floss his deity a little bit. And, and, and what he'll do is Jesus never cheats. He never cheats. He's fully man. However, he doesn't turn off being God. He just relinquished the utilization of being God and showing it off to God giving him permission to do it. And so somehow, after he came out of the wilderness temptation, and now he's going forth and gathering his core group, he, if he found, uh, he went from another spot, and he went into Galilee. So it's another day. So this is the third day. And he said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda. Now, this is interesting, because Bethesda was like a metropolis-type spot. It was a banging, banging city. So Peter, Andrew, and Philip, all of them was, I mean, they were from the big city. I mean, so they weren't, they weren't little country dudes, little hick dudes, uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying, little, little, little dudes in a small town. There was nothing about them, not saying that anybody in here is hick, but I'm just saying they weren't from a small town. And he said, and it says, Philip, from, Philip was from Bethesda of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So they knew Jesus. Somehow, some way, shape, or form, they said, yo, this is Joseph's son. Joseph's son? Your word? Yeah, man, come on through. And so they go forward and he says, and Nathaniel said to him, Nathaniel, you know, back in the day, we used to do like this. When we knew, thought somebody was lying, we go like this. <laughs> when Philip tell Andrew, and Philip tell Nathaniel that, Nathaniel go, you lying like a mug, you lying. He said, he say, man, can anything good come out of Galilee, Nazareth? This cat from Nazareth? Now, y'all gotta understand. Nazareth was on the other side of the mountain. You know what I'm saying? Had about 1,000 people, 1,500 people in it. You know, and you know in those times, people didn't concentrate in it. They just spread all out. So you felt how small Gal- Nazareth was. You know, most people mispicture Galilee. It, it wasn't that it was a thuggish city. Can anything good? Can you always, somebody said, no, it was a small town. You know what I'm saying? And, and, it was the, and it was the lowest of small towns. And so them cats being from the big city, um, you, you, y'all ever now, any New Yorkers in the room? No, sometimes, and I'm not dogging New Yorkers, but sometimes I can feel like from New Yorkers, there ain't no place better than New York. So that's how these cats from Bethesda felt. They were like, they were like look, we're from Bethesda. You know how we roll. We're from Bethesda. Bethesda in the hut? Yeah, we're from Bethesda. Nazareth? And, 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 so, and so what's crazy, what's crazy about this is that he's not only thinking about Galilee from a physical standpoint, but he's thinking about it from a spiritual standpoint. Because he's like the Messiah ain't supposed to come from, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. So can anything good come, of it, kind of come out of it? And so Philip, Philip said, again, roll with me. Roll with me, fam. Come, come check. Check what I'm talking about out. Come, come see this dude that I'm talking about. Come on. Let's roll. So they dip. 
Which leads me, I'm just missing points. Um, not even using the outline. I don't even want to make it. Um, disciples of Jesus, next point, are invited by Jesus to experience him in the fullness of redemption. Now we're going into the climax of the passage. You always see that during, the, during, during uh, John, in the book of John, he has many climaxes, and then they'll get low. Then they'll have another climax, then they'll get low. Then the ultimate climax, of course, is when Christ dies on the cross and, and comes up out of the grave. But here's a, a, another small climax. And it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now, there Jesus go again, acting like he know people, just meeting people and telling them about themselves. Telling them about themselves. So he, he meets him and says, an Israelite indeed. And he's playing on words here, pointing them back to Genesis. He says, an Israelite, and we'll see in a minute how he plays on it as we go into verse 51, 50 and 51. But he says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He says, you're a real dude. I give it to you, Nate. You, you, Jesus said, you real, man. I got to give it to you. I saw, I, you know, I, you're real. And he's like, man, how do you know I'm real? He said, how do you, he says, how do you know me? You don't know, you ain't never seen me before in your life. <laughs> Jesus did something crazy. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus just got to Galilee. So if Jesus just got to Galilee, how did Jesus see him under the fig tree? Now, you got to understand how intimate a fig tree was. Fig trees back in their day was the place of discipleship. So teachers would get under fig trees because fig trees had big leaves and, you know, dudes could kick it under the fig tree and chop it up in the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? Talk about talk theology. And so Nathaniel was a theologically, probably a theologically interested dude. And so Jesus makes the connection, but he shows the intimacy of the power of his connection. Because you got to understand, even though Jesus, this is crazy, because usually most people see it that Jesus saw him specifically then. But let's think about this now. Jesus is God, right? Since Jesus is God, Jesus saw things before they actually happened, before he even became a human. So when Jesus became, took on an additional nature in becoming human, Jesus didn't forget everything, even though he toned it down. And so God allows Jesus to throw a little nugget out there. He says, I saw you. I saw you. And Nathaniel is rocked. It says, Nathaniel answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God, king of Israel. Oh, man. He gives him three titles. Rabbi, he says I'm teacher, but he talks about him. Teacher here means my great one. But then he says, Son of God, which means God's son, 
being God's son makes him God because he's God's offspring. Then it says, you are king of Israel. So he says, son of God. But when he uses son of God here, he's talking about in the sense, not, not just him calling him God, but he's talking about him as son of God in a limited sense. Because when you look at something called the Messianic Psalms, in those Psalms, the, the king is called a son of God. And so what happens is, is that he says, oh, this is the cat we've been waiting for. He's a, he's a son of God, a king of Israel. And so what he begins to do is, from his perspective, he starts throwing out political terminology. He starts thinking again about what he can get. He says, man, oh, it's on. I'm, I'm chilling here. It's only three of us. Oh, man, and I'm the first one in the bunch. I'm, oh, you son of God. I t- what else you want me to tell you? He's in the mix with him. And, say, and Jesus checks him real quick. Jesus is banging about checking us. He says, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe now? Do you believe? He says, you shall see greater things than these. The terminology of greater things throughout the book of John is always Jesus giving a deeper call for his believers, people who trust in him and walk with him to be able to experience the fullness of everything that he's bringing to the table. And so he says, if you think this is something, If you continue walking with me, you'll see greater things. Many of us have rededicated our life to Christ. Many of us have had climactic Christian experiences post being a Christian. And they usually don't turn into anything because we don't continue to walk with them. Many of us right now are in spiritual stagnance because, because we want the greater things to be certain things. And, and Jesus is calling. He wants, you to, he wants you right now. He wants somebody in here right now to commit deeper to a relationship with him where you know that you don't call the shots. And the next time you feel like you're not calling the shots, you don't get frustrated and start walking away from him again. Many of us, every time Jesus does not come through like we want to, we ease our way away from going deeper. And Jesus says, if you would just stick around, if you would just stick around, hang in there. And look, God allows sometimes us to feel like we in spiritual drought to see if we'll still intensively follow him. You will never see greater things if you keep giving up real early. If you keep giving up, you will never, ever see greater things. I like Fear Factor in those shows like that. And they always present another challenge to them. And when they present the challenge, I mean, I mean, one time they had this joint where you stick your head up under the under this thing and you in a box with some sunglasses or with some with some glasses on and rats just running all around you just crawling over your head and looking at you and sniffing up your nose and and some people they they, they look at that thing they saw the first person get up out of here they was like I quit I quit 
But some people get in there because they're looking for greater things. Not that Jesus is going to put rats on your head. But Jesus does call us to greater things that's a lot of times bridged with hard things. Hard things. Some of us, we have to understand, God, and I'm 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 going to close this thing down. But, but many of us, in order to see greater things, we're going to have to take our picture of the American dream out of our minds. And we need to begin to frame a kingdom picture. And Jesus does it in this passage. He says, this is what will happen if you continue. This, this is the greater thing that you'll see. He says, truly, truly. It means amen, amen. Usually you said amen at the end of something, but Jesus says amen at the beginning because he's about to spark something dope. He says, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 through 19, Jacob is in a place that eventually he calls Bethel, house of God. And when he goes there, it says that he has a dream. He lays his head on a rock, a rock is his pillow, and he's having hard times. He's frustrated with God as he's running from his brother, and he lays his head on, on a rock because he's going to, he's going to and, the, and the Bible says, and the heavens opened up, and he saw a ladder that made a connection between heaven and earth and the angels of God descending and ascending upon it. Jesus says to him, well, let's go back to Jacob real quick. Jacob says when he wakes up, he says, oh, man, I'm blown away. God is in this place, man, and I didn't know it. So I'm a change. This place is called Bethel, the house of God, for this is the place where God dwells, where God kind of meets with cats. So I'm going to call it that. And Jesus says, If you'll just wait for a while longer, you will see, not in a vision, but you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus Christ says, I am the ladder that Jacob saw. I am the connection between heaven and earth. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on me. I'm the connection between God wrapping it up on planet earth. And and if you would just wait a little longer, I'll give you commercials and you'll get to see the full movie. If you'll just stay on and hang on in there with me, you'll see greater things. God is wanting to reveal so much of his kingdom through your life. But you got to hang in there as a disciple. Jesus, always for his disciples, wants to connect heaven to earth for them. Always. Jesus never separates heaven from earth. He connects heaven to earth. And so the way God, God chops it up real nice, like when he does it, and when he chops it up, he does it enough so earth can understand it, but heaven can accredit it because it's something that started in heaven and it did not start on earth. And that the fullness of the redemption that will come through Jesus Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension And the eternal connection that Jesus makes between man and God, he says, 
if you want to see me connect, and some of us ain't excited about that. If you're going to be a disciple, you've got to be excited about God and where you live and you dwell, make connections between heaven and earth. As a, on a regular basis as a disciple, you have got to see, you've got to walk in the expectation of seeing Jesus Christ connect you to heaven and connect. And the context of this passage is connecting others to heaven as disciples. So now it's time to amp it up a notch. Disciples.web. You saw in this passage the web of relationships of a bunch of dudes who knew each other that called each other into the web of discipleship. And all of them are on the road to an unfailing picture of Jesus Christ. And what's so funny is Jesus calls a bunch of different diverse people to it. As diverse as this room is, he calls businessmen. He calls radical Hebrew, uh, Hebrew dudes who, who were wanting to, who were wanting to uh, start a resistance movement. He gets a, a political official. He, he gets poor people. He gets rich people. He gets dudes from all types of different, dudes who do this from all types of geography to experience him and to begin a banging road. And then the next time we meet, We'll unpack and unfold Jesus' first miracle, where they go five deep into the land of Canaan to a wedding. And it'll be the beginning of the voyage of how he continues to unpack those words. The Bible calls him the son of man. It points back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, of the one who is God who comes in the form of a man, Jesus. So as we leave today, don't leave with anything else but a passion to walk more deeply with Jesus as his disciple. Begin the saga today, every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you've never began that saga. Maybe you've never began that saga. Maybe you're a Christian. And I want to I pray with Christians today. I want to pray with my brothers and sisters in Jesus today. But first, I, I want to talk to those who have never met Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've never been called into a re- discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you don't realize that God has a beef with you. Because of sin. But he calls you into a relationship. He made him who knew no sin, who wasn't a sinner, to die on the cross. And the beef that he had with us, he put on him. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the beef was crushed, if you believe in it. And he was raised from the dead. If that's you in in here and you've never trusted that, slip your hand in the air. If you want to trust Christ this morning. Slip your hand in the air. If you are a disciple today of Jesus Christ, if you're a person that knows Christ as Lord and Savior, and, 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 and you've been pricked a little bit today, I mean, this is no magic trick, but I just, want, uh, I just want you to stand so we can pray together. Just pray 
as disciples who Christ is calling deeper. If that's you who said, man, I do need to go deeper. I, I have been slacking. I need, to, I need to amp it back up. Why don't you stand today? Lord God, you see your people who are seeking to go into a deeper discipleship relationship with you. Lord God, I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ that you would overwhelm them with the newness of life that comes in Jesus. It's, it's easy in this fallen world, Lord God, to feel the weight of life. And to allow it to hit us in such a way that it causes us not to walk in intensive discipleship of you to you. So, God, I pray in Christ's name for these followers of Jesus who know Jesus to walk deeper and not just for it to be a standing moment where we just kind of announce it and we just kind of pray and we walk away and nothing's changed. But, Lord God, I pray for each and every one of them that they would be called into dynamic Christian community at a local crew of people who believe in joining God on a mission and who believe in challenging one another, who believe in walking intensively with you so that, Lord God, they can continue to grow and continue the saga of what it means to walk on a journey with God through Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray that it would be more than a business deal, that it would be more than getting a mate, that it would be more than more money in the bank account, that it would be more than all of that, but it would be the simple contentment of a knowing without a shadow of a doubt that they're smack dab in the will of God by walking intensively with you in a way that they never have. I pray that you would meet them with brand new, renewed vigor for the joy of their salvation. The joy of their salvation. I pray that you would renew it, that they would be blown away by Jesus again. Help us to not be desensitized to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Amp us up again so that we can dig deep with you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.